Growing up, my relationship with food was, well, complicated. I was raised on home-cooked meals, McDonald's, and my favorite patty melt, fries, and mocha shake from Hamburger Patties, our favorite burger joint just up the street from where I grew up in Portland, Oregon. My love affair with sugar started when I was very young. Across the street from my grade school was a little yellow candy store. Inside was a world of jawbreakers, whatchamacallit bars, Reese's peanut butter cups, and juicy fruits. I was in heaven. Every day after school, I would run over there and get as much as my allowance would buy. I hated school, so this was a safe haven for me to fill up my Pez dispenser and pig out on Reese's peanut butter cups as a way to numb the pain in my young, tender heart. I loved the high that sugar gave me. During those first few moments of a sugar rush, I was happy and not worried about getting beat up on the playground at school because I was different. I was able to numb the pain and wondered if I would ever be loved and accepted. This was the start of a very unhealthy relationship with food and my body that would last for the next 25 years and lead to a life of insecurity, self-sufficiency, and superficial relationships. As I got older, I learned how to channel my anger and resentment by controlling my body and what I ate. This gave me great power and I loved it. I quickly figured out how to manipulate my body with food and exercise and they became my idols. For two weeks, I would push myself with daily three-hour periods of intense exercise while drinking nothing but green juice, followed by five days on binging on whatever I wanted. My OCD around food was so bad that even a carrot would freak me out for fear of the carb content. Anytime I ate out, I would add up nutrient ratios in my head and internally dissect them. And my OCD didn't stop there. My internal dialogue was always that I needed to lose weight and then suddenly my life would be perfect. It was a never-ending rumination that I couldn't shut off. Restriction and hunger made me happy and equaled good girl status. Eating like a normal person or indulging a bit put me in the dark night of my soul. Fearful, lonely, not deserving of love, a bad, bad girl. It wasn't until I understood why my relationship with food and my body was so dysregulated that I finally healed my depression, anxiety, and OCD. And today I help others do the same. Which leads me to wonder, why is our relationship with food so strained? Could understanding the history of how we as a people evolved with food help us in our healing process? I'm Sammy G, and you're listening to Eat for Life the show that helps you identify the root causes of what ails you so you can heal and live the life you are meant for. This is my 50th episode of the Eat for Life podcast, so today I'm exploring food. I'm curious, what role does your relationship with food play in your life? Do you see it as good, bad, or neutral? Do you eat to live or live to eat? Is food merely a means to an end? Or could it have a deeper significance than what the mainstream narrative tells us? I feel we've gotten so far away from what food actually is that a basic understanding of it is important. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, food is material consisting essentially of protein, carbohydrate, and fat used in the body of an organism to sustain life, provide energy, and promote growth. 
The kinds of foods Miriam mentions contain high-quality nutrients such as vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, and amino acids our bodies need to thrive and our brains need to feel balanced and happy. A far cry from the Honey Nut Cheerios I had for breakfast when I was a kid. Sadly, most of the things marketed as food your body does not recognize as food, which has led to a nutrient deficiency crisis. Please know this isn't your fault. I blame the food industry because they purposely engineer their products to be addictive, to get the dopamine hit in your brain that makes you want more, while in the end, leaving you dissatisfied, hangry, and depressed. So what went wrong? Why are we more diseased, sad, lonely, and anxious than ever in the history of our species? Why do autism, autoimmune diseases, and infertility rates keep climbing? Why are mental health challenges such an integral part of our children's lives? In the 18th and 19th centuries, the Industrial Revolution led to the creation of machinery, transport, factories, and amazing new job opportunities. This increased the production of goods and gave people the ability to transport raw materials on a global scale. Unfortunately, this is also when the world's natural resources like water, trees, soil, minerals, and animals were transformed, which reduced the planet's stock of valuable natural capital. The global challenges of widespread water and air pollution, reductions in biodiversity, destruction of wildlife habitat, and even global warming can be traced back to this time in human history. I think it's also important to note that this was the start of our medical cartel complex, which also plays a major role in our current healthcare crisis. Fast forward to today, and our diets are full of heavily processed foods containing sugar, flour, and industrialized vegetable seed oils. 50% of the calories people eat come from these nutrient void sources that lead to major deficits and beneficial nutrients in our diet, which is seriously impacting our health, something we've seen highlighted with the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only are these foods low in bioavailable nutrients, but they are high in anti-nutrients that block the absorption of other valuable nutrients in the body, like zinc, iron, magnesium, niacin, and calcium, to name a few. Modern intensive agricultural methods have stripped increasing amounts of nutrients from the soil, and sadly, each successive generation of fast-growing, pest-resistant crops are truly less dense than the previous one. Fruits and vegetables grown decades ago were much richer in vitamins and minerals than the varieties most of us eat today. A landmark study on this topic by Donald Davis and his team of researchers from the University of Texas at Austin, Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry, was published in December 2004 in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition. They studied U.S. Department of Agriculture nutritional data from both 1950 and 1999 for 43 different vegetables and fruits, finding reliable declines in the amount of protein, calcium, phosphorus, iron, riboflavin, and vitamin C over the past half century. According to Davis, our modern breed of high-yield providing crops have seen declines in magnesium, zinc, and vitamins B6 and E. As I've shared on previous episodes, vitamin B6 and zinc are critical for making and balancing neurotransmitters and hormones. 
During the Industrial Revolution, removing the bran from the germ of grains through milling and mass refining seemed like a good idea at the time because it meant that grain products could sit on store shelves much longer without spoiling. Then at the end of World War II, bakeries in America began using large amounts of chemicals, additives, bleaches, and preservatives. As much as 25 different chemicals are added to refined grain and bread products. These chemicals can be anything from coal tar to petroleum to acetylene gas. Because this process strips all the vitamin and mineral content from the original source, these foods need to be fortified and enriched. Fortification has left us with nutrient imbalances and overloads that have significantly impacted our health, contributing to massive amounts of epigenetic insults. Then came the development of a new modern toxic food, high-yield dwarf wheat, which is not the same wheat eaten 150 years ago. This new frankenfood has been manipulated to produce more protein, making bread chewy and spongy, and most of this extra protein is gluten and wheat germ agglutinin, but what makes it so highly addictive are its morphine-like substances called gluten exorphins. These compounds have proven opioid effects that can mask the negative effects of gluten protein on gastrointestinal lining and function, which is why many people don't realize they have leaky gut until it turns into a serious health crisis. With high-yield dwarf wheat, we started to see the development of celiac and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which gave us the gluten-free movement. What's so interesting about gluten-free products is that many of them are no better than gluten-containing products because they are still heavily refined and loaded with chemical additives. They simply have a different label slapped on them to entice you to buy. In episode 37, I spoke with No Pain, No Grain author, Dr. Peter Osborne, and he had this to say. For example, we know that the gluten coming from wheat definitely causes leaky gut, intestinal permeability leading to increased systemic inflammation. Gluten as a protein itself, if you're gluten sensitive, if you eat grain, it's going to be highly inflammatory for you. So that's grain inflammation, right? And then we also know that grain, the way it's harvested, the way it's grown, now, one of the things they do is they spray the ground with a chemical called glyphosate. Then when they're harvesting, they desiccate the crop or they dry it out using glyphosate again. So most grain crops today get double sprayed with a chemical that we know causes cancer and inflammation and gut dysbiosis. And that's not healthy. The 1950s ushered in a new concept from scientist Ansel Keys. Saturated fat from animals contributes to heart disease by raising blood cholesterol levels, while polyunsaturated fats found in vegetable oils do just the opposite. Despite the fact that he cherry-picked data from his study, his diet-heart hypothesis brought the emergence of industrialized seed, bean, and grain oils, such as corn, soybean, and canola. Like refined grains, polyunsaturated vegetable oils become highly toxic and rancid during processing. Because of this, they go through a complex process of bleaching and deodorizing, using hexane, to make them palatable and look good on the shelf. These oils are in every processed food, restaurant, salad bar, and market all over the world. In fact, Whole Foods is notorious for using canola and soybean oils in their prepared foods. These days, it's not just about the things we know are unhealthy, such as Diet Coke, Snickers bars, and Twinkies. It's the marketing we also need to watch out for because labeling is often deceiving. 
For example, non-GMO means nothing more than the plant was not artificially genetically modified. It does not mean it hasn't been sprayed with toxic pesticides, fungicides, or other chemicals. In fact, 18 of the 26 non-GMO labeled products tested in the Detox Project's glyphosate report contained glyphosate. This report also shows that pre-harvest spraying called desiccation and off-label use of glyphosate-based weed killers is leading to the mass contamination of essential foods that form the base of many people's diets. Organic isn't perfect, but it does help reduce the overall toxic load you are exposed to. Now just consider for a moment how food makes you feel. What do you notice after you eat? Are you anxious or depressed? Do you feel bloated or want to take a nap? Do your meals give you energy and vitality? Consider creating a food mood journal to pinpoint foods that might be restricting the way you think, feel, and act. This is an exercise I do with all my clients. Now go ahead and pause this episode and pull out a sheet of paper. Make three columns and six rows. Label the rows morning, mid-morning, lunch, mid-afternoon, dinner, and late evening. Now label the columns food, mood, and poop. Yes, the last column is poop because it's a very important bodily function that should be happening daily. Now use this as your guide to see how food impacts you. For example, maybe this morning you had instant oats with maple syrup, apple slices, and cinnamon and felt bloated, hungry, and depressed an hour later. Maybe you notice you don't have a bowel movement for a couple of days. Perhaps you realize this is a pattern after you eat instant oats and decide to have something else for breakfast, such as sweet potato mash with ground turkey. Give it a try. What you notice may surprise you. Americans spend over $70 billion a year on diets and diet products. Yet despite all the pills, books, plans, meal replacement products, and special diet foods designed to lose weight and turn back time, People continue to struggle, and this obsession with food in our bodies is only getting worse. Why is this? And how does this tie into our cultural history with food and changes to our environment that have impacted gene expression, leading to the high rates of mental health issues, infertility, autoimmunity, and autism I mentioned earlier? While I highly doubt our early ancestors were worried about their loincloths making their butts look too big, it's clear that the early Greeks and Romans believed that physical fitness was a sign of beauty and a healthy mind. They thought being overweight was not only ugly, it was also a sign of mental unbalance. Despite this, their ideal was much curvier than the skinny ideal that's permeated so much of our cultural landscape. In fact, if Venus de Milo were alive today, she'd be 5'7", 171 pounds, with a 35-inch bust, 30-inch waist, and 40-inch hips. In 1558, Luigi Cornaro published the first actual diet book titled The Art of Living Long. Cornaro was an extremely overweight Italian who had an epiphany when he was 40. Tired of being overweight, feeling out of control, and unable to have sex, he limited himself to 12 ounces of food a day and 14 ounces of wine. Canaro lived to be almost 100 years old, and toward the end of his life, only ate egg yolks. 
By the mid-1800s, the ideal of both masculine and feminine beauty was thin and romantic. <gasps> Women's dresses required a tiny laced-in waist, and men wore tights or breeches with tight-fitting jackets until around the end of the 19th century. Form-fitting clothing and a slim figure meant people that did not fit into this ideal were again fair game to be ridiculed and called immoral. One book from 1881 even advised governments to arrest and imprison people for being overweight. Between 1850 and 1900, eating disorders boomed as Victorian anorexia became a very popular form of self-imposed starvation that women practiced in order to look thin and frail. Even back then, high society women took long hikes, went horseback riding, and did gymnastics while eating very little and using laxatives and emetics to keep their weight down. If they gained even a pound, they would start fasting and were often reported as moody and withdrawn. Gee, I wonder why. The first mention of a paleo diet was in 1825 by Biot Savarine, who wrote The Physiology of Taste, or Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy. He argued that fat is not a disease, but a lamentable result of an inclination to which we give way. He advised people to give up bread and flour-based foods, root vegetables, sugar, and starches, and eat only fruits, vegetables, and lean meats. The most dramatic change in American attitudes toward diet and weight occurred right after World War I, a time of massive social revolution and feminism. In her 1819 book, The Art of Beauty, cosmetics entrepreneur Helena Rubinstein wrote, Fat is repulsive. Slim and boyish is sexier than womanly. She would later become one of the world's wealthiest women. Too bad she made her wealth by shaming women and making them feel self-conscious, insecure, and inhuman. All of a sudden, people were buying their first bathroom scales as well as vitamins, fat massages, thyroid extracts, sweat baths, chewing gums, and pills with diet drugs in them. Magazines that reached mass audiences such as Ladies Home Journal and Saturday Evening Post were covered with ads for weight loss cures. Many of these so-called cures were actually dangerous and contained iodine, arsenic, and other poisons such as dinitrophenol or DNP, a drug that speeds up the metabolic rate, but was later banned as a powerful carcinogen because many people who took it died or went blind. To date, there have been 62 published deaths in the medical literature attributed to DNP. By the mid-1920s, cigarette companies were selling cigarettes as health aids that supposedly benefited digestion and, most importantly, helped one stay slim. The ads would feature doctors in white coats testifying how they advised their patients to smoke for their health. One of the most famous ads from the era was a Lucky Strike campaign with the slogan, Light a Lucky and you'll never miss sweets that make you fat. The ads depicted beautiful, slim flappers, liberated and carefree, smoking a Lucky Strike. Over the next 10 years, cigarette manufacturers added amphetamines and other appetite suppressants into their products. The biggest influence on the ideal of slimness and beauty by far has been the Hollywood movie industry which began making the first silent movies in 1895. Since then, we've been inundated with trailers, ads, and Instagram-worthy posts of what women should look like and be like. 
No wonder our children are so confused. Out of this, suddenly all kinds of products were for sale, including Lamar Reducing Soap, Slen's Fat Reducing Chewing Gum, and Lesser Slim Figure Bath Oil. The first diet drink, named Squirt, also went on the market. Sadly, over $50 million was spent every year on laxatives, which were used as an ingredient in reducing breads. As slimness became the norm, it became culturally acceptable to demean people that struggled with their weight. Dr. Leonard Williams, author of a 1926 diet book, said being fat was about self-indulgence, greed, and gourmandizing. Dr. Williams accused American women of overfeeding their husbands to make them docile. William Fitch, author of Dietotherapy, wrote that fat people turn their stomachs into an overfed boiler that burns out. Amelia Somerville, author of the 1916 book called Why Be Fat, wrote, I would die sooner than be fat. In 1935, Dr. William Hay divided all foods into alkaline, acid, or neutral. Carbohydrates and starches were considered alkaline, meats and other proteins acidic, and the others neutral. According to Hay, one shouldn't combine acid and alkaline foods because the body is unable to digest them completely. There's nothing scientific about his claims, but food combining endures today. The 1940s ushered in the grapefruit diet and the master cleanse diet. For three days, you drink nothing but one teaspoon each of lemon juice and maple syrup with a dash of cayenne pepper and a glass of water six to 12 times per day, which is supposed to flush out fat and supercharge your metabolism. It's amazing to me this concoction is still being sold and marketed in the exact same way today. In the 1960s and 70s, dieters got help from the medical community in the form of prescription diet pills, which contain amphetamines and DNP to increase the metabolic rate. These drugs were already being widely prescribed for depression and had been widely abused for decades. By 1970, 8% of all prescriptions were for amphetamines, with many sold by diet doctors at diet clinics. An interesting Warner's ad of the era made use of yet another tactic that feels so familiar today, body shaming. The ad shows a close-up photograph of a pair with the overlay text that reads, this is no shape for a girl, and that it's for girls with too much bottom and too little top. Yet Warner's brings good tidings. The ad announces you can take your misshapen body and remold it into something socially acceptable. Why suffer in pear-shaped silence when you can buy your way to an hourglass? All of a sudden, we've got a proportioned body and your clothes fit better. Warner's calls this a body do. And by the way, they actually trademarked body do. Since the 1970s, we had a resurgence of the low-fat diet that was popular when I was a teenager that was originally promoted by Sylvester Graham, inventor of the Graham Cracker in 1830, who wrote that fat is bad for your health and makes one morally corrupt and sexually promiscuous. He advised parents to teach temperate eating as a matter of morals. Graham led health retreats, preaching vegetarianism and the avoidance of tea, coffee, tobacco, and alcohol. Today we have paleo, keto, carnivore, vegetarian, vegan, and raw vegan with many hybrids. We're told plants are good for us and we should make them the bulk of our diet. Then someone else comes along and says kale is BS, that we should be eating raw liver, honey, bananas, and no plants. 
While any diet can be helpful, they are still one-size-fits-all paradigms that don't take into consideration your unique story in biochemistry. So why do we jump on the diet bandwagon so easily? In episode 31, I spoke with my friend and colleague, Mindy Gorman-Pletzer, and she had this to say about diets. I believe that recovery, recovery from anything to regain what was lost or taken is relational. And relationship with self is reflected in our relationship with everything else. So food is a symptom of that deficiency in relationship to self. And our relationship to food, our relationship with food, stems from messaging, from a belief system. So it's very important when we are looking to explore a relationship with food, to transform our relationship with food, to look at the context within which this belief system about food in our bodies evolved. Have you ever thought about how your perceptions can significantly influence your body's reaction to food? Food should be pleasurable, but unfortunately, for so many people, it's a source of fear, anxiety, and overwhelm. In our world of influencer marketing and Dr. Google, it's no wonder we're more confused than ever about what and how to eat. The anxiety and confusion that happens when we view food as bad or evil can lead to beliefs that create poor health perceptions and even a stress response that can impact the body in more ways than we realize. As I wrap up, how does this journey through time help you see these relationships in a different context? For example, when you open your cabinet to get an afternoon snack, what thoughts go through your mind? When you look at a takeout menu, what's the story you're telling yourself? When you wake up feeling less than vibrant, what's your rationale for why? Are you passing judgment on yourself? Are you thinking about the food you eat as good or bad, healthy or unhealthy? Are you blaming yourself for the way you feel? Again, what you notice might surprise you. As I wrap up, how does this journey through time help you see these relationships in a different context? I really want this to be useful to you, so I encourage keeping a journal to write down any thoughts that come to mind. How much time do you spend thinking about food? What do you notice in your body during these times? What are some ways you can shift your thoughts about the impact of different types of foods in your life? What are the stories you tell yourself? What is the judgment or moral quality around these thoughts? Next time on the Eat for Life podcast, I'll be exploring sustainability with James Connolly, producer of the movie Sacred Cow. If this episode was eye-opening for you, I would be so appreciative if you shared it with a friend. I am committed to greatly expanding the people I reach with big questions and ideas about food, biochemistry, and sustainability this year. Every time you share Eat for Life, you make that possible. So thank you. Don't miss an episode of Eat for Life. Be sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player.